scripture reading this morning is from the book of Haggai, and it's uh, the first eight verses of chapter one. Let me read them, and the words are on the screen. You can follow along. The prophet writes, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua of Jazadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of God. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but you never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I might take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Let's uh, let's pray together this morning. Lord, thank you for the privilege we have to meet here this morning. Thank you for a roof over our head last night. Thank you for the abundance that we enjoy in our country today. Lord, we're reminded today of, uh, through world events, of how quickly life can be taken from us. Lord, we think of 25,000 people in Turkey and Syria who last week lost their lives through a horrible earthquake. We think of hundreds of thousands that are living on the streets now and have no place to stay. And, and Lord, um, we, we pray your grace and mercy on them. Lord, thank you for relief organizations that come in and help. Thank you for organizations like Samaritan's Purse that is setting up a field hospital in Turkey. And they're not only setting up to care for the physical needs of those people, but the spiritual needs. And so, Lord, we pray your um, touch on all those that have been affected by that earthquake. Lord, we pray for our own country today. Uh, Lord, uh, our own nation that's uh, set adrift from your word and your principles and the foundational truths that our country was founded on. Lord, we pray for President Biden and Vice President Harris. Lord, we pray for uh, Governor Whitmer. We pray for our own local officials, Lord. Uh, may they seek wisdom and guidance from you. And now, Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open up our hearts to what you have to say Again, help us to be like Samuel, who said, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening, and we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is February 12th, but it feels like uh, April 12th outside, so we'll, uh, we'll, take, uh, we'll take the sunshine and the warmth, and uh, glad that uh, God's blessed us with some nice, nice warm weather for the next week or a couple of weeks. But we're going to jump back into uh, some of the minor prophets. And if you remember, uh, two weeks ago, we finished up uh, the book of Habakkuk. And we looked at uh, that book, three chapters, a minor prophet with a major message. And the major message was that God's in control of the world. And we saw that Habakkuk was looking around the world around him, and he was asking some questions of God uh, how long are you going to put up with the sins of God's people? And God answered him, and he says, I am going to do something. I'm going to bring the Babylonians to judge them. And that brought up a whole nother series of questions that uh, Habakkuk had. 
And the book ends with Habakkuk um, uh, realizing that God is on his throne and he's worshiping and praising God even in the midst of difficult situations. And that's the real test of maturity as a Christian. It's easy to praise God and give him praise and glory when things are going well. Uh, if you're a, a believer in the country of Turkey this morning, it would be a little more difficult to do so. So we're going to look at another uh, minor prophet uh, with a major message, and it's the book of Haggai, the book of Haggai. Now, if I were to ask you this morning to take out a sheet of paper and write down on that sheet of paper everything you know about the book of Haggai, uh, I think if we were honest this morning, we'd probably have a lot of blank sheets. That probably would have been my case about a month ago. I knew a little bit about it, but um, I'd forgotten uh, don't really read Haggai regularly in my devotions. Perhaps you do, but it's a great book. It's only two chapters long, and so we're going to look at uh, this book of Haggai. Let's put it in context. Remember the structure of the Old Testament. Here it is: five twelve, five five twelve. Actually, we're gonna we're gonna. This will help you remember this. We're gonna clap it. It's okay to clap in church. You already clapped once. Let's clap it out. Here we go. Five twelve, five five twelve. A couple of you didn't clap. Five twelve, five five twelve. All right, I'll stop there. <laughs> um, five books of Pentateuch: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Twelve books of history: the history of Israel. It's the history of God's people. Five twelve, five five. Five books of poetry: Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Five major prophets. And then 12, what, minor prophets. So we're in this section of the Old Testament uh, with the minor prophets. And to understand this book, we're going to have to get context. Uh, this happens all the time. We, we, um, somebody quotes us from saying something, and we, we might say, well, you know what? That, I need to give you just some context of what I said there, because the context will give you the meaning. And so we need to understand the, the background and the context of Haggai before we get into the book. And so I think you have an insert um, in your bulletin that has, is titled The Twelve Minor Prophets. And so this will give us some context. If you have that, take that out. Uh, so we're going to think of two kinds of, of prophets, minor prophets, pre-exilic and post-exilic. What do you mean exilic? Well, Remember the, the history of God's people that in 722 BC, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians. In 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah was taken captive by the Babylonians and they were captives for 70 years. And then as we're going to see this morning, uh, they were allowed to come back to the land. So that's what we mean by pre-exilic prophets that were prophesying and, and crying out to God's people and saying, you better turn back to God or judgment's coming. That was basically their message. And they didn't do it, and judgment came. The, the post-exilic prophets now are ministering to a group of people who have been in exile in Babylon, a thousand miles away, and now they're back in the land of Jerusalem. So I, I've just listed the, the pre-exilic prophets to Israel are Jonah, Amos, and Hosea, the pre-exilic prophets to Judah, the southern kingdom, Obadiah, Joel, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. So Habakkuk that we looked at was before the captivity. 
70 years. Now the post-exilic prophets to Judah, now they're back in the land, are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And uh, these books are all, uh, they, they ministered about 520 B.C. to 430 B.C. Then the end of the Old Testament comes. Then there's something called the 400 silent years where there's no prophets, there's no, no word from God, and then John the Baptist comes on the scene and all of a sudden it ushers in uh, the New Testament. So that context is important for us to understand that we're looking at Haggai who is ministering to people who now are back in, in Jerusalem after being captive for 70 years. And so just a little bit of a historical timeline. I think you have this in the outline as well. Uh, so 605 B.C., Judah falls to Babylon. 586 B.C., the temple is destroyed. They totally decimate Solomon's temple that was built, that glorious temple. In 539 B.C., King Cyrus, who's the king of Persia, that's now the new world power, issues an edict that the Israelites, the God's people who are in captivity, now are allowed to come back to the land. And they come back um, in uh, sections. There are like 50,000 came, and then a little bit later, more of them came. And so it was kind of a rolling uh, group of people that came back. And so... Uh, that was 539 B.C., and one of the things that they began to do as soon as they got back to Jerusalem is that they began to rebuild the temple. And in 534 B.C., they laid the foundation of a new temple because the old one's been destroyed. And Haggai, that we're going to look at, is now prophesying in 520 B.C., and so that's, that's a little bit of the, of the, the background. And uh, we don't have time to look at the book of Ezra, but the first few chapters of Ezra gives you this historical background. It lists the edict from King Cyrus. It lists the uh, number of people in chapter 2 who came back. There are about 50,000 of them. The uh, first thing they did is they built an altar on the, the, the temple place. Then they built a foundation and then what happened, and Ezra chapter 3 and 4 um, enumerates this, they ran into some opposition. Imagine starting on a project and running into trouble. <laughs> Happens all the time, doesn't it? There was some opposition of the Samaritans who weren't happy that the Jews were back in the land and that they were going to start to rebuild the temple. And so uh, they bring that attention to the, the leadership and work on the temple is completely stopped. The people got discouraged and they stopped rebuilding the temple. And Haggai comes along in 520 B.C. and he has a message from God to these people. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So hopefully I've given you enough time to find Haggai in your, in your Bible, Old Testament. And it's uh, the third last book in the uh, Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And so let's look at uh, the book of Haggai. So here it is. For 14 years, that temple foundation laid there and Nobody did anything about it. 
I'm sure thousands of people, thousands of Jews walked by that temple foundation that, that they started building on 14 years earlier in those 14-year time period, and nobody said, hey, let's finish the job. I don't know. I'm sure all of us have been there, whether it's at a church or whether it's at a business or whether it's in our home life, and we're looking at something and we're thinking, why doesn't somebody do something about this? We've all thought that. About maybe seven years ago, um, Di and I were at um, a church in Ann Arbor called Acts 242, one of these big churches, and uh, they happen to have a huge play structure, playground inside that church, uh, climbing things and foam pits and everything a kid could ever dream of. The, the play structure and play areas is as big as our auditorium or, or a little bit bigger. And uh, so I think it must have been spring break and uh, we were looking for something to do with our grandkids. So we took uh, Shane and Luke there and there are like dozens and dozens of kids all over this play structure and uh, parents are kind of sitting outside. You got to take your shoes off to go in and observing and kind of watching the kids, but kind of not watching the kids. And I'm watching this and there's this big slide. And these kids uh, are like zooming down that slide and it's really fast and they go flying off. And, and then there's all sorts of kids that are running around like right by that slide. And I'm like thinking, somebody's going to get hurt. Like, why isn't somebody monitoring this? Why isn't there somebody there? Because someone's going to get hurt bad. And I thought about that for about a minute or two. And then I don't know if it was God speaking to me or maybe common sense. And I thought, Ron, why don't you do something about that? I guess I'm the solution to that. So I took my shoes off and I went in front of that slide and I'm like, you know, hey, careful, kids, you know, look out. Someone's going to get hurt. We've all thought like, why doesn't somebody do something? The prophet Haggai shows up and God basically speaks a message to God's people and he says, when are you going to do something? You know, oftentimes when we think about whether it's, again, church, home, ministry, business, why doesn't somebody do something? A lot of times in the context of church ministry, that's a good sign that maybe, maybe that's what God's speaking to you and you ought to be the one to do something. I, I'm so grateful in, in our church family that just over the, the last six weeks or so, um, people have come to me and they've taken some initiative in things like a woman's prayer group that's going to meet over the phone. And is it okay if we get a group of people who lays together and pray regularly? Um, yeah, let me think about that. Of course. Just recently, um, our leadership begun um, in my office, like five minutes before the service, 10 minutes, and anyone's welcome to join us. We, we're praying. We just pray before the service. That that initiative took place from... took. Um, came about because somebody took that initiative and said, can we do this? Like, I would love to do that. 
uh, you'll see the Operation Christmas Child box that, that we usually just have around Christmas time, but now it's out in our entryway all year long. And because somebody took the initiative and says, you know what, Christmas is so rushed, let's put that out there and we can take our time and buy things for Operation Christmas Child all year long. Can I do, can we do that? I'm like, of course we can do that. That is a great idea. Recently, somebody came to me and says, you know what, could we, we kind of expand our WANA ministry to kids and not just have it for like six or seven months, but minister to kids all year long? I'm like, yeah, that would be wonderful. And, and they're saying, you know what, and, and I'm, willing to, I'm willing to do that. Recently, somebody else came to me and said, can we, can we do a little, maybe start a little percussion group um, with with maybe some of the kids and maybe have them up here on uh, occasionally and and doing a special music and and I'm willing to do that. Yes, we can do that. Just a couple of weeks ago somebody came to me, "Hey, we've we've discovered a need in our um ladies breakfast fellowship and uh, is it okay if we kind of get together and and put some funds together and meet that need?" Yes, that's what we're here for. And so if you're thinking, why doesn't somebody do something? <laughs> that's a lot of times God's saying, guess what? Maybe you're the one. Well, let's look at uh, the book of Haggai. Uh, this is a fascinating book. It's only two chapters long. It takes place over a four-month period. God speaks four uh, oracles or messages to Haggai to God's people. And what I find fascinating is each one is dated uh, to the very specific day it was given. In a, Haggai 1.1, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month. So God's given us the exact date. This message came to Haggai in, on our calendar, September 1st, 520 B.C., and then the next message is dated, and then the next two are dated, and they occur over four months. So the first one is September 1st, 520 B.C. Reminds me of my paternal grandmother. Lived in Buffalo, New York um, her whole life. And uh, this is years and years ago when we were younger. She used to actually write letters. They may know what that is. You write, write letters, yeah. She had a typewriter and should should type out these letters. Uh, it would get three or four a year, and uh, should should uh, just kind of update on what's going on in, in their lives and ask questions about our lives. But what I remember is up above the the letter was uh, the exact date. And the time of day, and then she always included the temperature. And she lived in Buffalo, New York, and it was usually started with a minus. <laughs> That's how she wrote letters. Well, this book is, is dated for us. We know exactly. Here's the first message came September 1st, 520 BC, 500 years before Christ came. And uh, it's it's given to the prophet Haggai, and then there's two other names mentioned. Zerubbabel, he's the governor, he's the political leader. Joshua is the spiritual leader. So it's Haggai the prophet, Zerubbabel, 
is the political leader. Joshua is the spiritual leader. And uh, let's uh, jump into our outline here. Uh, And it starts out with the people's excuse. The people's excuse. Uh, Verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, God's people, these exiles that are back in the land, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. It's not time to rebuild. It's not time. The foundation's been there for 14 years. What are you waiting for? And their excuse was like, you know, it's... It's just not the right time. Reminds me of my unfinished projects that uh, Diane's asked me to do. And, uh, you know, I tell her if I say I'll do it, I don't need to be reminded every six months. Uh, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll get done. Well, 14 years have gone by. And nobody has taken the initiative to rebuild the temple, God's house. And so God asked some probing questions. Here they are, verses 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruins? God's saying, um, hey, you've, you've uh, remodeled your own house. The lake house is all done. In fact, one commentator said that the people were taking the, the, the cedar panels that were taken from the cedars of Lebanon that were intended to rebuild God's temple, and they took that and they used it for their own houses. And God's saying, should you really be living in your fancy remodeled house while... This foundation remains empty? That God's house isn't, a, and, and the person of God and the worship of God isn't important enough for you to rebuild the temple, the very house of God? And so the problem's analyzed, and God speaks very directly and, um, to the problem and its wrong priorities. Verse 5. The problem analyzed. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. I'm not going to ask for raise of hands, but like, Where'd that paycheck go? <laughs> We've all been there. Like, where'd all that money go? That's, uh, that's what God's, God's saying. You, you know, you're earning money, but it's like a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down the timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord. Here's the crux of the matter. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and their crops, 
It's called for, I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, the grain, the wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and all the labor of your hands. If we had time, we could go to Deuteronomy 28. And this is what God says. If you don't, um, if you want blessing in your life, obey me. Follow my commands and I will bless you. But the rest of chapter 28, which is the majority of it, says, if you don't obey me, if you don't have your priorities right, guess what's going to happen? And there's a whole list of some horrible things. And one of them is what we just described, like your, your land's not going to produce much. You're, you're, going to, you're going to be struggling. You're never going to be satisfied. And so what was the, the, the problem with God's people is that their priorities were wrong. While they had their houses remodeled, no one lifted a finger to rebuild the temple. Well, let's look at the positive response, the positive response. So that was the message that God gave to Haggai to give to God's people. And um, how did they respond? Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, Joshua, son of Jazadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Verse 14, drop down to verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and they began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. So there we have a, uh, you know, the date laid out for us again. 23 days later, after, after God gave them this message, what did they do? They started to rebuild. After, after 14 years of doing nothing, the people obeyed God and feared God and God's word. Well, that leads us to the last um, part of our outline here, the, the promise of God. And I want you to see this in, in verse 13. As part of the people's response and Haggai's message to the people, uh, verse 13, then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you. So God not only said, I want you to get busy rebuilding the house, but he gave him a promise. Hey, you're not in this alone. I will be with you every step of the way. I'm with you. I remember in the Old Testament that the Spirit of God came on people for certain tasks, and then sometimes he would withdraw from people. And he says, when you obey me and you're doing my work, my presence will be with you. That's the same promise that God gave to Joshua 900 years earlier when they first went into the land. It's the same promise that God gives to us in Matthew chapter 28 that talks about the Great Commission and sharing Christ and going into all the world and lo, what I'm with you. You're not in this alone. I promise to be with you to the ends of the earth. I'll never leave you, and I'll never forsake you. Well, that's a quick overview of, uh, of chapter 1. The people begin to rebuild the temple. 
because they listened to God's word and their lives were changed. And that's where change comes, doesn't it? Change comes in our lives not just by hearing the word, but James says, I want you to do the word. I want you to obey me and put it into practice. So let's look at four life lessons from um, Haggai chapter 1, and then we'll be, we'll be done this morning. Four life lessons from Haggai chapter 1. Here's, here's the first one. Our natural or human nature response to sin in our lives or wrong priorities is to make excuses. Now, that's what the, the exiles did. The foundation's been sitting there for 14 years, and they're like, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's not the right time yet. The time has not come. They began to make excuses. And all of us are pretty good at that. We, we uh, learned that from our first parents, didn't we? Adam and Eve, when God came looking at them in the garden, and what have you done? And Adam says, well, you know, it's, it's the wife's fault. It's Eve's fault. And Eve says, it's the serpent's fault. And, and they began to shift blame and make excuses. The 12 spies that were sent into Canaan to look at the land that God had promised to them and uh, came back and... Uh, Gave a great report. It's a beautiful land. It's flowing with milk and honey, and we've never seen such such fruit. And the crops and everything is beautiful. But um, there's some really tall people in the land, so um, we don't think we want to. You know, it's not it's not the right time because there's giants in the land. Uh, we could look at the excuse of King Saul in First Samuel chapter 15, and when God said. I want you to totally destroy that city and King Saul what kept kept some of the things for himself, some of the sheep and some of the oxen. And, and he says, well, when God confronted him, he says, well, I, I'm doing that to make a sacrifice. And God says, to obey is better than a sacrifice. We all like to make excuses. Over the years... Um, heard a lot of excuses from people. We think about Hebrews 10.25 says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. In other words, you know, as believers, we need to make church a priority and, and come together. And um, over the years, and, and these are these are all um, real life excuses. I remember in our first ministry, there was a, a, a couple that said, and uh, they stopped, they started coming, they stopped coming, they said, the, the lights are too bright in the auditorium, so uh, the, the lights are bright, and we didn't have dimmer switches, and so I'm thinking, well, bring some sunglasses, buddy, you wear them outside, you can wear them in the church, the lights are too bright, so we can't come to, can't come to church. I remember one family, and they had donated a family Bible to the church, kind of like um, what we have on the altar this morning. It was a big family Bible, and it had been there for years, for years. And then, uh, you know, some folks wanted to decorate and change things up and uh, took that family Bible off the altar. And on Monday morning, I had a phone call on someone in my office, and um, they had donated that family Bible. They were not happy that somebody removed that family Bible after it was there for five years without asking them first. And so uh, 
they are no longer um, going to be attending church. Or the, the famous one that we've heard over and over and over again is like, it's my only day to sleep in. I'm so tired. Our natural response is, is to make excuses, and that's what God's people were doing. And God says, I want, I want obedience. I want obedience. Life lesson number two, when we begin to do God's work, we should expect opposition. When we begin to do God's work, and that's what they did as soon as they got back to the land, uh, they built an altar, they did a foundation, and they were all excited about rebuilding the temple, and then opposition came. The Samaritans began to complain, and they wrote some letters to King Cyrus, and a work stoppage came. I want you to know that when you begin to do what God wants you to do, expect opposition. Why? Because we're in a spiritual battle. And there's somebody out there, the evil one, who doesn't want you involved in that. And so now you become a target, and you expect, expect opposition. You know, that's why one of the reasons why we need to um, encourage one another, and Hebrews talks about that, that we need Hebrews 3.13, exhort and encourage one another daily, daily. Um, you know, how many want to sign up for the daily encouragement program? I, I do. You know, we need it. We need it every day, don't we? We need it from God's word, but we also need it from one another. First Thessalonians 4 talks about that. Encouraging one another. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not become weary in doing good because we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up. And so we need to encourage one another. Um. We, we, we simply need to have that, that, that mindset of, uh, of encouraging people when we see them ministering and doing something. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought, though, um, at some point in time, just encourage our accompanists that um, we have four ladies, I think four or five, that rotate playing the clavinova and the piano. And... Uh, uh, I greatly appreciate that. There are, there are some churches that are like uh, begging for piano players. We're blessed with a, a number of them. But wouldn't it be great to just go up to them one day and just say, hey, thank, thank you for that, that ministry of, of music. Uh, we have a whole team of people that helped with sound, a whole team of people that now helped with live stream. We have um, children's church workers that while we're enjoying uh, hopefully a worship time together, they're... They're ministering downstairs, and it'd be great as a parent to encourage them and say, thank you. Um, those that do our cookie ministry, and on and on it goes. Let's encourage one another, because when we begin to do God's work, we can expect opposition. That was true in the book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah's book is written right near this historical time period as well. They started to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem when they got back, and guess what? Opposition came up, and they stopped the work. 
And so Nehemiah kept encouraging and encouraging and encouraging. And in 52 days, they completed the walls of Jerusalem. And so when we begin to do God's work, we should expect opposition. Number three, uh, the scriptures regularly call us to take inventory of our lives. The scriptures regularly call us to pause, get off the treadmill of life, and take inventory of life. You see that in, in our passage, Haggai 1.5. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says, Give careful thought to your ways. Verse 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. It was um, Greek philosopher Socrates that made a famous statement, the unexamined life is not worth living. And the scriptures call us to do that, don't they? To pause and take inventory of our life. That's part of the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 11 says, before you partake of the bread and the cup, examine yourself, evaluate your life. And that's good to do in our normal lives, isn't it? In, in just everyday life, as a married couple, to pause and evaluate where things are, as in a marriage, to evaluate where things are in parenting, to evaluate our finances, to evaluate our priorities. God's saying, it's good to stop, pause, and examine our lives. In fact, that's the prayer of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. The psalmist ends Psalm 139, Search me, God, and know my heart, and test me, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Well, the scriptures call us to take inventory. And God came to God's people through Haggai and said, hey, you better give careful thought to your ways and your priorities. And that leads us to the last one um, from Haggai chapter 1 is this, that wrong priorities in our lives leads to dissatisfaction or leads to emptiness. And we read it in, in Haggai chapter 1 where God says, you planted much, but you don't have much return. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, you never have your fill. You put on clothes, you're not warm. You earn wages, but only to have a purse with holes in it. You can't get satisfaction. That's the whole message of the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon had all the resources in the world, the wealthiest man, and he says, meaningless, meaningless, I can't find satisfaction. Why is that? Because when our priorities get out of line, um, then we're not satisfied. We're always longing for something more. So the scriptures call us what? To put God first. Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. I'm a jealous God. I demand first place. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Matthew 6, 33. Seek first God's kingdom, and then I'll add all these things to you. 
And so wrong priorities in our life, when God's not first, then everything else gets out of alignment. And so God wants us to put him first. And as we're going to see that in chapter 2, then uh, uh, God challenges the people to, to begin to work. And, and they begin to work, and God promises his blessing on their lives. Well, God wants us to examine our life, take inventory, evaluate our priorities, but then make a correction change. I love what uh, Dr. George Sweeting, the um, president emeritus of Moody Bible Institute, says, the Christian life is a series of new beginnings. And that's what the the exiles needed. They 14 years earlier, they had started and, and were on the right track, and then they got off track. And then Haggai came, and they got a new start, a fresh start. They got their priorities right, and they began to build the temple. And so... Uh, God gives us a chance to have a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance to do what he wants us to do. Let's, let's pray together, shall we? Lord, thank you for this uh, little book, Haggai, that speaks to our lives today. And Lord, it's my prayer that um, from our brief study this morning that we won't leave here just saying, I have new information and I know more about the book of Haggai. That's, that's the start. But Lord, I pray that um, the information that we looked at and the questions that we looked at and the evaluation of priorities in our life will lead us not just to information but transformation of our life. That we will decide that uh, your way is the best way We'll make a commitment this morning to put God first in our life. And Lord, we know when we do that, um, we open ourselves up to your abundant blessing in our life. So Lord, help us uh, today, um, maybe even in the closing moments of this service, or sometime today, just to get aside and to pause and evaluate our life and ask you to uh, help us to reorder any of those priorities that have gotten um, out of whack. And Lord, thank you that you're a God that uh, always is there to welcome us back and put us on the right path and a longing to bless us. So we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.